Well, hello again. I'm glad to be worshiping with you all this morning. It's, it's going to be fun and potentially jarring. I mean, if you listen to that incredibly long uh, scripture passage there, you'll, you'll know why. Um, if you're new, we as a church have been going through a series on the life of Jesus. So we've been chronologically walking through all four Gospels. And now we're at uh, Matthew chapter 23. Uh, last week, Paul preached about the station of Jesus as Lord, the position there, and how he fits into the grand scheme of the family of God. And now we're jumping further into this same speech about how Jesus continues to give uh, after this, at where he addresses what happens when people forget, when people don't see him as the one true Lord, the one true rabbi, father, instructor, as this verse says, He then gives them a scathing verbal lashing. And that's to the people that have rejected that very thing. So, church, today's scripture is a brutal one. (laughs) And we as a Western culture have somehow focused and like pinpointed on the gentle nature of God and Jesus, um, which he absolutely is a gentle and loving God. But we also need to remember that he's a God of justice. And justice is part of this love. And the justice he's speaking about today is one due himself, so you have to know that he's not going to let this sit idly. So when you hear things like, you know, God is just love, so just love people and be gentle, that's partly true, but we also need to define love better. Because love isn't just giving gifts on Christmas and being nice to people. Love is it encapsulates a lot more. It's also... Discipline. It's also fighting for those you care about. And it's also doing the hard things for people and for their betterment. I mean, those of you that are parents and teachers and leaders, you know that. So this passage, although rather intense and ferocious in its diction, ultimately points us to a good God, to a king worth following, and to the only king worth us laying our false crowns at his feet and at the throne of our God. So keep Matthew chapter 23 open, because we're going to basically walking through the whole chapter, as you just saw. Um, if you don't know, Matthew is about three-fourths of the way through the Bible. It's the first book of the New Testament, right before you get to Mark. And if you don't have a Bible, if you forgot to bring it with you, there's one in the pews right in front of you. If you don't own one, we want to give you one. We have some at the information center right outside those doors to the left. And we love to give you one, because we want you to have this truth in your house. So there is some truth in this passage that I really needed to hear, and I think is crucial for us to talk about as a church. So I'm excited to share what I've been learning these past couple weeks. But before we get there, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning, for your truth, and for a chance to talk about you with your body. We want to know you more, and we want to know more about how your life, your death, and your resurrection affects our life. And we want to talk about ways that we can be servants and disciples of your way, and ways that we can be a part of proclaiming your kingdom to those around us, because your news is the best news, and we want to see that reach the ends of the earth. So be with us this morning as we explore this passage and we explore more of your character. 
Amen. Has anyone here experienced a kidney stone? So much pain in one room. Only one of you needed to raise your hand and I would have said that because it's really one of the worst pains you can endure. I had one uh, back when I was living in New York City years back. Uh, my dad had several, but I didn't heed that genetic warning because I was young and I thought I had years of invincibility behind me. Um, I was wrong. This tiny rock of pain made itself known to me very quick and with all caps locked on. One moment I'm editing for the magazine that I was working for, and the next moment I'm running around the office frantically in a sheer amount of pain and panic, agony, bewilderment, all the things. But luckily I worked for a magazine that was catered to emergency doctors, so I just called my, the founder of the magazine and said, hey, what is wrong with me? And he basically had me describe the situation and he said, go to the ER now, you have a kidney stone. <laughs> what? <laughs> so my boss, Logan, who was a dear friend of mine and one of the elders at the church that I was interning at the time, he got us a cab to the nearest hospital. And in that moment, I had no control. And I was scared, and I was in a lot of pain. So the traffic on the way there just wasn't moving. It was stereotypically New York City, as you see in the movies. And... So in order for me to feel like a, like a sense of there's something being done to quell the suffering, I just jumped out of the car and ran to the hospital. Um, and Logan arrived like three minutes later. But traffic, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't moving. Then I got to this, uh, this ER that was jam-packed, uh, full, and I had to endure this triage process that made the sloth from Zootopia just look stupid. So... I went through all that, and eventually I got to be in a hospital bed in the hallway, not even in a room. And I continued to get these questions from nurses and doctors over and over and over again, the same questions. And I just, I lost all sense of control. And eventually I just grabbed the nearest doctor's wrist and said, I don't know what's happening. I can't fix this. I don't know how. Please do something. Please do something. And finally, medication and a plan came. There was a brief pause to this agony. And I've told some of you this story. Uh, usually I tell it to talk about like the love of God's community as you know, my wife and my church and the, our community group that we're in, they all came to the hospital and loved us so well. And that's a different sermon for a different day that talks about the love of God's community I want all of us to experience. But the other thing I remember about that experience was this lack of control, this lack of understanding. See, I needed someone else to act. There was nothing I could do to fix this pain, and I had to trust an expert. And you better believe that I'll heed the warning that my dad has given me about kidney stones that comes from genetics and wrong diet and all that. My life was forever altered by that. And the thing that I want you to gather from this story is that there's things in our lives that we need ripped out of us. So we can scratch at our skin to get these layers off of us that we're so embarrassed by. But we all need the king to do his work. Because we have no control or the means to do this painful but good work. See, Jesus is the one true Lord that can take away 
these things that our flesh is holding on to with such fervor. So in our passage today, we're going to see how Jesus warns us of this and how he lays into those guilty of doing just that. So here, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to listen to Jesus' warning to not lead a life like these Pharisees and scribes have. We're then going to hear how he dismantles this lifestyle that he's adamantly against. And then we're going to see how the response to this isn't first behavior modification, but instead is to recognize God's one true place in all of this. So that's the plan. Let's get to work. Uh, grab your Bibles. We're going to read, reread verses 1 through 12 together. It says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad broad, and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So the message in these first 12 verses is kind of the hinge point for it all. Um, Because this portion of the lesson, he tells the disciples to watch out for the Pharisees' life, how to respond to that. He then shifts gears to tell the Pharisees what they're doing wrong. And these woes come into play to expand on the points made here in these first 12 verses. But he does two things here. The first is to expose his hypocrisy, and then he exalts humility. In verse 1, we learn that he's speaking to the crowds and to the disciples about the Pharisees. So he hasn't started kicking down doors yet. He first he starts off building his church upon the rock of his own perfect humility. He tells his people to avoid the hypocrisy exuded by these religious leaders. He tells them to avoid having big mouths and big heads. I mean, he starts it off by saying, do as they say, not as they do. I mean, they were teaching scripture, but not actually practicing it. Douglas Sean O'Donnell, this great pastor and theologian, he gives a cool illustration in his commentary. He talks about being online with Scripture, on the line. So he doesn't, God doesn't want us to add to Scripture, which is going above the line, or subtracting from Scripture, which is going below the line. So here, these religious leaders do all three. So they teach as successors to Moses with the right words, but by action... They are teaching us to do less than Scripture says by not living according to the law. And they tell people to live above the line by overburdening them with these man-made rules that were crushing people with the pressure of it all. And that comes from verse 4. Verse 4 says, 
They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. The worst part about that verse to me is that they're not willing to help to move these burdens off these people that they place there. That's so absolutely counter to God's way. So he goes on to expose their hypocrisy more in saying that they do all these deeds to be seen and exalted by others. The word all should jump out to you from this page because it means that all their actions are infected by pride. So let me explain phylacteries broad and fringes long because that's something that we're not really accustomed to. Um, the Old Testament books of Exodus and Deuteronomy, they explain this act more as a sense of reminder and a lot of God's people chose to take them literally. So these phylacteries are these small boxes that people wore on their foreheads that were filled with tiny little scrolls of the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, the law. So they wore these on their heads to remind them to live according to God's law, which is hard to, hard to ignore them because they're right on your forehead. So you can imagine the outrageousness of this as these people start to make these boxes bigger and broader so that people could see how great and pious they are as they walk around the marketplace. But Jesus didn't take, off- didn't take offense to them doing this. He took more offense to the fact that they were making them bigger, to making them broad so they can be treated differently by other people. I actually saw a bunch of these in Brooklyn as Bridget and I lived in a Hasidic Jewish neighborhood while we were there. Um, so it's still a thing. Uh, we actually saw more of the tiny little scrolls on people's doorways, uh, which is talked about in Deuteronomy 6, um, which those aren't very, they weren't very like gaudy or in your face. They're kind of those cute little scrolls that are just on the side of the doorways. Uh, pretty fun. But anywho, the fringes talked about are the same thing because they're described not to be outward facing part of these prayer shawls that they wore. They were meant to also be reminders to oneself. But these leaders, they made these fringes on the end super long, super broad. And again, the issue wasn't that they wore these because Jesus himself was talked about twice as wearing garments with fringes. The issue is that they were made long to be seen. They were broad and long. So next, he moves on to attack what they love. So they love the places of honor at feasts, the best seats in the synagogue, greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbis by others. The crazy thing about these warnings is they're not really specific to these religious leaders. I mean, if you've never wanted people to see how faithful you were to the cause, I mean, you might not just be self-aware of your own life. Have you ever posted some act of service or mission trip you would went on on Facebook more so that you can have people see you did that as opposed to inviting them to praise God for that work? Have you ever told a story to someone about someone else's conversion so that you can have them know you were actually evangelizing and that overshadowed you wanting them to join you and pray for that person? I saw this meme the other day. Have you ever posted a verse on social media about humility and then spent the rest of the day doubling back to see how many likes you got? So to be clear, I'm, I'm pointing these out to say how easy it is for the wrong motivation to come in from our pride 
to infect these good acts. So it's okay to be honored. It's okay to get a good seat of things because of someone else's gratitude. But it's, it's, if you're working towards that goal, specifically for that, and reveling in it, that's when it takes a wrong turn. So he goes on to expose this love of being called a certain title. Rabbi, father, instructor. That'd be like if I came in here with some weird, uncomfortable sense of pride whenever you called me Pastor Matt. Or if I did the stereotypically doctor thing and someone said, hey, Matt, I'd be like, well, that's Pastor Matt. That'd be weird. Or if I told you to call me something like His Highness or His Excellency, <laughs> that'd be wrong. So there's nothing wrong with the pastor, uh, like the title of pastor or even father or instructor like this verse says. I mean, pastor means shepherd. It has a lowly title and a lowly connotation because it talks about being a servant, essentially. But if I were to revel in it, then it's bad. See, you see the problem there. It's the motivation. And maybe there was a time when the title of pastor was a sense of pride, but that's not the case anymore. I mean, when I talk to unbelievers in Spokane, I say, hey, I'm a pastor. They're like, oh, cool. And they change the subject right away. (laughs) So there's no sense of honor I get from this title, which is fine. Same goes for those that are in this room that are called father or called instructor or teacher, if you're a teacher, like the same thing. The role is not the problem. It's the motivation behind being called that role. And it's the fact that it's the one true father, instructor, rabbi. So he goes on to point to humility for his people. So we shouldn't see ourselves as the one true rabbi, father, or instructor. Those titles belong to God. So when someone gets up here to preach If we're doing this role right, we aren't preaching from the chair of like Matt or Paul. We're we're preaching from the chair of Christ. And we strive to preach the word, not land well-timed jokes or make some convicting point that makes you cry so that you can make us love you or love us as your preacher. And as Christians, we aren't the Lord of our lives. We need to make it central to see him as Lord Because he saves, he sustains, and he loves. He's worthy of your affection. He alone. But more on that later. Now we'll talk about this turning point you'll see in these long sets of verses. We, We know that Jesus was speaking before this to the crowd, to the disciples, about the Pharisees. And that changes. See, I like to imagine that he just stands up from his teaching chair and just looks out at these religious leaders in that moment, if I was there, I, I would have known that it was about to get real. I would have started snickering to myself and grabbed some popcorn. But I can say that jokingly now, but in seriousness, this, this passage gets grim and sober fast. So Jesus, in his justice, gets righteously angry, as he should, as the Lord of the universe has been watching his people get murdered and mistreated for so very long. So Alfred Plummer, another theologian, he spoke about these seven woes as being like thunder in their unanswerable severity and like lightning in their unsparing exposure. They illuminate while they strike. It's pretty serious. And Jesus gives these seven woes from here on out 
to these religious leaders. And the way it's structured, it functions like four warnings to the church. And woe to you, that phrase has been used several times in the Old Testament as usually mean meaning of divine judgment. Because woe means great sorrow. And the concept of a woe usually is talked about as a funeral song, um, one given as lament, one to mourn the dead. So it's, how appropriate is that, you know? The first two woes, they say, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. So this first warning is to avoid having zeal without knowledge. And I'll explain that by using Scripture. In Romans 10, Paul, the Apostle Paul, was speaking to fellow Jews that rejected Jesus. And he said, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the witness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So, I mean, they had the spirit and they had this gumption for something, but for what? The imagery that Jesus uses here, it, it brings me sorrow because think about a door to heaven and people coming to it. And then these leaders shut the door in their faces. And to expand on that imagery, imagine them not opening the door wider for more people. Instead, they work harder to find one single person and make them twice the child of hell that they are. See, they think they're doing the right thing by having people avoid this man that was calling himself the Christ, that was calling himself God. See, these wandering souls are coming to their salvation, and then, the, then these leaders lead them on the terribly wrong path. So they aren't just wrong. They're contagiously wrong. That'd be like if the doctors and scientists working on the coronavirus across the world, if their advice to people was, hey, don't stay here. Go to the big cities with bigger, better doctors. Go away from here and spread. That's not the right answer to something that is contagious. So this zeal that they had was hurting people due to its contagious nature. So let's talk about religious zeal for a second. Because zeal, like fervor or enthusiasm, is not wrong. I mean, the Bible talks about zeal positively. It's the without, without knowledge part that's the kicker. See, Mormons and secular humanists and atheists can have a huge amount of zeal for their cause. And so zeal can be great, but it often isn't an indicator of truth. And even Christians can be guilty of this. It's possible to have so much zeal for the Bible and still be a jerk to someone and close a door in a worship experience. We can know so much about the Bible, 
but simultaneously not know or heed or apply the Bible. And we miss what it actually tells us. So just like these religious rulers here who claim to know the Torah cover to cover. The next third and fourth woes, they say, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing but... But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And if you say anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears to the temple swears by it and by him who dwells on it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So the warning here is to stop making the small things into the more important things. The common title he uses for these people here is blind guide. So the imagery here is like if you paid someone to be your guide to the top of Mount Rainier or some other large 14er mountain and you showed up to find your guide was blind. That'd be an incredibly dangerous situation all of a sudden. So these blind guides have made a big deal of tithings, temple offerings, while neglecting the weightier things like justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Now, the, the last image of this small little passage, it needs to be explained. It says, you blind guys straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. It's a weird thing to say. But both gnats and camels were considered unclean as animals. Um, and when drinking wine back then, it was common to strain it through some gauze to filter out impurities and to filter out these microscopic bugs called gnats. So imagine them doing that action so meticulously and then afterwards swallowing a huge camel hole. So this is like them wearing these prayer shawls correctly, but also metaphorically and physically spitting in poor people's faces as they walk to the temple. Again, be warned, because we as Christians in today's age can be guilty of this. We can neglect the weightier matters for the minor ones. The world shouldn't know us as Christians by things like our dress code, our Sunday school class offerings, our painted steeples, our tithing reports, or even the sounds of our choirs. These are all good and wonderful things, but the Bible tells us they will know we are Christ's followers by our love. So we can be guilty of placing these good minor things above the weightier things like justice, mercy, and faithfulness, and above things like proclaiming the gospel by word and deed. The fifth and sixth woe, we're going to keep moving on. They say, Woe to you, 
scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So he uses two illustrations here. The first is of a dirty bowl. So imagine washing your dishes, but only cleaning the outside, and then putting them right back in your cupboard. And then one morning going to pour a bowl of cereal into a bowl that has like an inch caked on amount of grotesque mold. It's not a good image. The second, he brings up tombs. See, it was a custom back then for the festival of Passover, which people traveled all over the world to get to Jerusalem for this festival. Um, they would, before that, whitewash all the tombs on the, roads, on the roadside there because touching a grave made you unclean. So they whitewashed them so that you can easily avoid them on your travels, essentially. So these tombs, they looked new. They looked beautiful when you're walking by. But inside were full of putrid, decaying death. Can you imagine being described that way? Like, on the inside, you're just decaying death? That's severe. So the warning for us is not to focus on behavior modification as the end goal, to make us look like Christians. So don't make a habit of doing good things just to earn that title of Christian. Give your life to Christ. He will clean your heart and wash you white as snow. And his cleansing and transformation will lead to good works. This last woe and warning is perhaps the most severe. So we'll read that now. Verse 29, it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then and measure your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may call all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Bechariah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar, Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So he says here that they live by this excuse that they didn't take part in the murder of these prophets of old. And even if they had been there, had been alive during that time, they wouldn't have taken part in the shedding of blood and the offenses. So he responds with, You serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? 
There's no suitable response to that. Because he, he uses a phrase that actually John the Baptist was famous for saying. Um, when John was in a similar situation in Matthew 3, he says, he actually calls a bunch of religious leaders brood of vipers. So when they heard this, there was no turning back. They have been a part of killing this Lord's prophets. And Jesus knew they were going to take his life and those, the lives of those following him. And they would crucify, flog, and chase his servants from town to town. And this Jesus will not bear. So the warning here is to avoid the unavoidable excuse of unbelief and the rejection that comes with it. Jesus goes on to say, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's two things I want you to take from that. The first is he refers to the temple as your house. Not his house. He's leaving it. And in our research, we find that the temple was raised and destroyed years later. But he says this temple that was meant to be a place of worship of God was now their house. And he's done having any part in it. So this is serious. So we're warned here not to be guilty of worshiping ourselves, the created, over the creator. So let's keep this house as a place of his worship. Let's not make this our church. Let's not even name this church something just so it can be remembered by its name and by the people in it. But instead, let's keep this place that points people to Jesus continuously and always. The next point is how we'll start to close this. He refers to himself as one thing in this thunderous passage. He doesn't call himself something terrifying, but he calls himself like a mother hen. One that gathers her brood under her wings. So these religious leaders, they didn't come to him seeking refuge that only a mother hen can provide. They didn't run to this care, this provision and love that he was offering. But I want us to run to Jesus after hearing these warnings. So it's easy for us to make a checklist after hearing something like this and say, so I should have zeal with knowledge of God. I should keep the major things major, and I should focus on the inward. No, the answer isn't first behavior modification. The answer is to run to the wings of our Savior. This points us back to verse 12, which says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. I've always loved this image of laying our crowns at the feet of the throne of the one true king. The action says, I'm no king, because we're not. This crown I've made is meaningless. I have no power to rule in my life. And I have no power to save myself. I can do no thing apart from Jesus. It's like laying on the ground in front of this throne and grabbing the ankle of our God, saying, I don't know what's happening. I don't know how to fix this. Please do something. Please do something. 
See, if we, if we talk about humility, we actually have the best example to follow, and that's Jesus. See, his life was one of being lower and lower still. See, he, he saw us in his plight, in, he, in our plight, and he came to us. He was born in a manger where animals came to eat. I mean, Mary and Joseph looked at their child not knowing that he had to go much further down as he was sitting there like a, swine, like a meal for the swine. And if that wasn't low enough, he came lower still. I mean, he washed the feet of his filthy fishermen disciples and he poured out his heart to people as they fell asleep. And he came lower still. He was captured and spit on and they beat in his face and they tore the skin off his back and lower still. He was stripped of his clothing. He was made to crawl through the streets with his execution device on his back. And he came lower still. He was hung on a criminal's cross. He was left to die there only to be buried later in the earth like a seed. But this low life of our Savior wasn't it. He lived this life perfectly with your debts in his heart. These debts were personal to him. He took them on himself to freely give life. A life that was wiped clean of sin. And death could hold this Savior because of his love for you and because of who he was. Death and, no, and sin no longer reigned because of him. And he came back to life and ascended to ensure that heaven was open for you, open for you as you ran to the wings of our God for refuge. See, this is the God that loves and gives justice. This is the one who warns us and invites us in. See, this is the God that told us to exalt humility and then showed us how. See, I could give you a list of things to make your life better. I can give you a list of things to make you, quote, stay away from a wrathful God. Now, the application here is to run to his arms, to sit in his goodness, to sit under him knowing that nothing can take you away or harm you. This is what he wants because he sees you and he wants you, all of you, even the parts you deem too dirty. If you aren't in his family, we so dearly want you to be. And this doesn't just apply to us before we get saved. The gospel is a truth we need every day past conversion. As believers, we're called to continuously point non-believers and believers alike to the truth of the gospel. Because it applies to every single thing in our life. See, look at these religious leaders. I mean, they saw this truth and tried to live by it, but then they quickly forgot it. You see how it affected their lives. So take refuge in the truth of the gospel every day and every second. And not so you can keep your salvation. That's not what I'm talking about here. So you can breathe in this difficult life. So you can remember the strength and confidence that comes only from him knowing that death has no sting for you. So you can daily be reminded that his spirit provides real, true, abundant life even now. So run to him so he can transform and mold you. 
so that he can rip out those parts of you that you're keeping, that are keeping you from abundant life. So that you can take, so he can take you in as a mother hen takes in her brood. Okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're a good God. And we see you as that. I mean, we see you in everything, even literature like C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, where Aslan the lion is described as a king that is not safe, but good. That's the God we see in scriptures, and that's the God that is you, that is the one we worship. And we come to you desperate for your work, and we come to you in complete humbleness, knowing that you are king of our lives, you are in control, and that you are good. I mean, if this life was in our control, if it was in our hands, you know we'd fail. But for us, luckily, you are in control. So we submit our lives to you. We submit this mission to you. We submit this church to you. We submit our families to you, our finances, and the sin in our lives to you because you're good. And we want you to be glorified. We love you, Father. Amen.